All right. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Pastor Dave, uh, for reading God's Word for us this morning. Uh, good to see everybody. Glad that you're out for our, our service today, second service, a little bit warmer than the first. Um, but it's a good day to be here, good day to open up the, uh, the Word of God. Um, if, you, if you don't know me, my name is Bob Erbig. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, in, in my role as pastor, uh, I have the privilege of sitting on our mission team here at NBC where I regularly get to hear field stories from our missionaries. It's incredible, I would say, to hear of their faith in, faith, the faith that God has given each and every one of them. In fact, often I'll hear stories about how they encountered spiritual warfare in ways that we never would dream in the U.S. And so I want to share with you a story I heard from a medical missionary recently. Uh, this man served a uh, small field hospital in Africa, Every two weeks, he had to go and travel to the city. He had to go through the jungle to get to the city to get medical supplies. And he had to travel by bicycle, if you can imagine that, driving through the jungle by bicycle. Uh, and because it was a two-day journey, he actually had to camp in the jungle. So he tells this story. He says, after I arrived in the city to collect from a bank, purchase medical uh, medicine and supplies, I began my two-day journey back to the field hospital. Now, when I arrived in the, in the city, I was approached by a young man, a man I had treated a couple weeks earlier, and he told me that he knew that I carried money and medicine, and he said, some friends of mine followed you into the jungle on your last trip, knowing that you would camp overnight, and so we waited outside your campsite until you went to sleep, and we were going to kill you and take your money and your medicine. But just as they were about to move into the campsite, he said, we observed and counted 26 armed guards standing around you. Now, the missionary heard this, and he laughed, and he said, I, I, I got to tell you, I certainly was alone in the jungle. But the young man pressed the point, and he said, uh, no, sir, I was not the only person to see the guards. My five friends also saw them, and we all counted them. It was because of these 26 armed guards that we were afraid and left you alone. Now, what are we to make of that? You have a missionary doing God's work all alone in the jungle, about to be killed by a group of thugs, and then miraculously, a group of 26 armed guards show up. Now, I've heard a lot of stories like this. And I have to ask, is, is it a case of spiritual warfare on display? Now, I suspect many of us listening today, whether you're here or at home, resonate, at least spiritually, with this medical missionary in our story. Because it can feel at certain times like we're in a jungle surrounded by enemies. They're closing in around us, about to pounce. And so I'd ask you today, do you feel surrounded it's in those times that we need to wage spiritual war. But some of us, I would suspect, don't take spiritual war very seriously. Or we think it happens in third world countries, right? You listen to a story like the one that I just shared and you say, well, that's Africa. Is it? I would suggest that all of us are living in a world at war and it's easy to feel surrounded by spiritual enemies. So maybe you're facing a personal challenge right now. I got to tell you, this, this week was pretty difficult for me, <laughs> physically, mentally, spiritually. I, I felt exhausted and in a bit of a rut, and maybe that's where you are at today as well. You're facing opposition at work 
or there's conflict in your family, or there's financial burdens you're not sure how to overcome, you are in a spiritual war. In our country, I mean, you turn on the news and you see all this strife, you know, lockdowns and elections and mask wearing and Black Lives Matter and rioting, Antifa, Supreme Court hearings that are contentious, elected officials that can't agree on anything, churches divided. It seems like our country is in a spiritual war with a growing hostility toward a Christian view of the world. Or perhaps you're facing problems with your relationships. So you come home after work and it seems like your family members are out to get you. And then you go to work and it seems like your boss just wants to push you harder and harder. You open your Facebook account and all your friends want to do is argue about the latest post that you made. We are in a spiritual war, and like our medical missionary friend, it feels like we're in a jungle, surrounded, and about to be robbed and killed. Now today we're continuing our series through First and Second Kings. Last week we looked at King Ahab and his quest to acquire a vineyard. Today we're going to catapult over several chapters and we're going to land, as Pastor Dave read, in Second Kings chapter 6, during the reign of the Israelite king Jeram who happens to be the son of Ahab and Jezebel. And if you were here last week, you know he grew up in a pretty dysfunctional family. The main character, though, in our story will be a new prophet named Elisha, not to be confused with his mentor Elijah, right? So let's try saying that five times fast. Elisha, Elijah. We're talking about Elisha today. Now, if you're someone facing a spiritual battle, I believe you'll be both challenged and encouraged by Elisha's faith in 2 Kings 6, 1 to 23. So if you have your Bibles, join me there. This chapter has two interesting stories that I think will offer some guidance on how to wage spiritual war. How do we fight spiritual battles today? These stories offer three principles. First, we have to trust God with the small skirmishes. Second, we have to trust God when we're under siege. And then finally, we have to ask God to open our eyes. We are in a war, and let's pray that God will give us bold courage as we move forward. To that end, let's pray today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for Jesus who came and died for us and ultimately will come back a second time with his armies to defeat Satan and his armies, Lord. We know the end of the story. We know there's victory in the future. And so, Lord, I pray for my friends today who may be feeling discouraged and downtrodden. I ask that you would uh, just come, Holy Spirit, and comfort us. Restore to us the confidence we need to have in you. And may you get the glory for today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you've ever watched a good war movie like Saving Private Ryan or The Patriot or more recently 1917, the screenplay is usually a mixture of small skirmishes and major battles. And so I think that's a helpful analogy as we consider our own spiritual battles because sometimes they're small and sometimes they're large watershed moments. And so the same is true with these two stories from Elisha's life today. But before we look at chapter 6, let me just give some background on the prophet Elisha. We first meet Elisha in 1 Kings chapter 19, and his story continues all the way to 2 Kings chapter 13. 
Elisha, again, was a student of the prophet Elijah, whose story concludes in 2 Kings chapter 2, uh, with a really famous story about Elisha being taken up to heaven on a chariot of fire. If you know nothing about Elijah, you probably have heard that story, at least. After Elijah is taken up to heaven, Elisha becomes the main prophet in Israel, and he's very influential, and his presence dominates the first half of 2 Kings. Elisha, in fact, may have even been a greater prophet than Elijah. In fact, he makes a bold request of Elijah in 2 Kings 2, verse 9. It says this. It says, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I'm taking from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Now, the request for a double portion specifically refers to spiritual power. And if you look at second, first and second Kings and the miracles that Elijah performed and Elisha performed, it actually is double the amount of miracles. Elisha, Elijah did eight, Elisha did 16. We read many of the miracles that Elisha performs in second Kings, like in second Kings two, he walks right over the Jordan river. Also in second Kings two, he heals the bitter waters at Jericho. He helped Israel's kings defeat their enemies, as we'll hear about today. He raised children from the dead in 2 Kings 4, and he healed foreign rulers of leprosy in 2 Kings 5. In fact, by the time we reach 2 Kings 6, Elisha has performed 10 miracles. And our first story in chapter 6, verse 1 to 7, is his 11th miracle. So let's pick up the story there, 2 Kings 6, 1. It's, <coughs> excuse me, it says, Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, see the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, go. Now this story isn't incredibly well known. So let me just give some quick summary context. You may remember in Elisha's Elijah's time, he was the only prophet of Yahweh left in Israel. But now that Elisha has taken over, things have changed. And so that phrase, sons of the prophets, refers to a growing group of prophets that Elisha has been training. It's like his Jedi Padawans he's taking taking under his wing. They're a growing student body on a newly formed seminary campus. In fact, the school is growing so much that they don't have enough room in the dormitories, and so they need to build a new building. They need some more space. So the students... um, ask Elijah, Elisha, the headmaster, if they can go down to the Jordan River and cut down some trees for this building project. So Elisha is overseeing a bunch of college students, and they work hard to build their house. But then disaster strikes. In verse 5, it says this, but as one was felling, that's cutting down a log, his axe head flew in the water, and he cried out, alas, my master, it was borrowed. Now, one of the college freshmen here has lost his axe. And what does he say? He says it was borrowed because you know when you're a college student, you don't own anything, right? You're always begging for money. You're poor college students. Some parents out there know that, that fact. In other words, the, the axe wasn't his. It came from some wealthy benefactor. Now, you might be listening and you think, you, you listen to the story and you think, well, so what? right? Big deal. Just, just run down to the first century Home Depot and pick up another axe. But not so fast. In the ancient world, iron tools like an axe were very, very valuable. So an axe head was rare and expensive. It would have cost many months of labor to purchase. 
So what you, sh what you shouldn't picture here is some cheap Home Depot purchased axe. You should imagine a college student borrowing your BMW and then driving it in the Passaic River over here. That's, that's, that's the gravity of the situation. This is, a, this is a crisis. This young prophet, this young college student, could possibly become now an indentured servant because of the debt he's about to incur. But Elisha steps in and performs a miracle. Verse 6, it says, Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick, threw it in there, and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Elisha saves the day. He makes the axe head float. And the young prophet can now return it to its owner. It's kind of like Thor calling out to his hammer. That's what Elisha did. Now, this intriguing little story at the beginning of the chapter does show us, I think, several important points. And the first one is this. Elisha was a powerful prophet. But he was only powerful because of God's supernatural power working through him. Because God is the ruler of creation, and he can overrule and overturn the laws of nature to perform a miracle. And when God performs a miracle through his prophet, it's always done to save his people. And so this young prophet was indeed saved. But second, and this is the more important point, I think, God comes to our aid in the small skirmishes of life. So this story is important because it shows us that even the small challenges we encounter in life, God cares about them. And maybe you don't believe that today, but he does. So perhaps you're in debt, like the young man was about to be in this story. God wants to walk with us through that challenge. Maybe your car broke down and you need to fix it or get a new one. Perhaps it's difficult balancing your schedule with all the responsibilities on your plate. You think in the grand scheme of things, all that stuff is just trivial. But even in the trivial and small events, God can show up and perform miracles. In those moments, we need to remember the floating axe head. <laughs> remember the floating axe head. And it's often that God uses these small challenges to prepare us for the bigger challenges that are going to come in life. So the miracle of the axe head is a small miracle and it prepares us for a bigger battle. When fighting our spiritual battles, we need to trust God in those small skirmishes, but we also need to trust God in the major battles when we're under siege. That's point number two. Trust God when you're under siege. So in our second story, Elisha encounters a much larger challenge than this building project, right? Now he's in a real physical war. And so this scene will show us the reality of the great cosmic invisible war between heaven and hell. Let's pick up at this story in verse 8. It says this, Once when the king of Syria was warring with Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. So we've moved from a river and an axe to an all-out war between Syria and Israel. Now, we're not told why they're fighting, just that they are. It's likely that the king of Syria is sending raiding parties across the border to provoke the Israel, Israelite king, Joram. But Israel's king has a secret weapon. He's got the prophet Elisha. Look at verse 9. It says this, But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the, and the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself more than once or twice. Now Elisha is playing the James Bond role in this story. He's a secret agent. 
Well, actually, it should be made clear that Elisha is discerning the movements of the Syrians through the power of God's spirit. In other words, Elisha is using spiritual power to protect Israel. So a better analogy would be, would be this. Elisha is actually stealing signs to let the Israelite army know every time the Syrians wanted to throw a curveball at them. In fact, the whole scene is, is pretty funny, right? Every time the Syrian king thinks he has caught Israel's army, uh, they'd be gone. He'd show up and be like, where'd they go? I thought they were here. It probably happened many, many times. And the only person who didn't think this was funny was the king of Syria. Look at verse 11. It says, And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants to, and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? So can you picture this scene? Right, right, the king is crying out in frustration. How did they know I was coming? I thought I had them this time. And naturally, he thinks that there's a traitor in their midst. All his servants, to protect themselves, try to come up with an answer, and eventually they point to Elisha. Verse 12, it says, And one of his servants said, None, my lord, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words you speak in your bedroom. So Israel has a prophet, a seer, a secret weapon, Although I will say it's a little creepy that he's listening in on his bedroom. It's clear that Israel has an advantage. The Syrians need to neutralize. What will they do? Verse 13. And he said, that's the king of Israel, the king of Syria, <clears throat> go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now, what's the king's plan here, right? After someone finds out where Elisha is, he sends an entire army after him. And I understand his desire to level the playing field, but we are talking about one man, right? Right, one guy. It does show us a truth, and I want to point this out. When we are doing great things for God, we will face opposition, when we're doing great things for God, we will face opposition. So Elisha here was being used by God in the world. And what we need today is God's people speaking God's word to a dying world. When that happens, you can be guaranteed that our enemy will send an army after us. And that brings us to what I'm going to call warfare lesson number one. And that's this, recognize the danger. That's a foundational principle. If you're going to fight a spiritual battle, you have to recognize the danger. And truthfully, some of us don't. We don't think there really is a spiritual war going on. Only religious fanatics believe that, right? C.S. Lewis famously wrote in his book, The Screwtape Letters, that we make a grave error if we disbelieve in the existence of the devil. I would suggest that's actually the devil's greatest weapon is if we disbelieve that he exists. Because truthfully, if, if you don't have an accurate assessment of the danger, if you don't have a good scouting report, you won't have a proper response. And that's why Paul writes to us in Ephesians 6 to put on the armor of God every day. Because when the attacks come, we have to be prepared to stand. Paul might as well have said, recognize the danger. Friends, we are in the midst of a great cosmic war. And as Christians, we face opposition from at least two areas. First, our circumstances. 
Because sometimes we're in a spiritual battle just because we live in a fallen world. And so we suffer, and, and we need to battle against that and trust the Lord. But secondly, we do have enemies. There are people who are actively seeking to oppose Christian beliefs in this world, and they want to silence the gospel. Secular people are constantly trying to lift up the false gods of money and sex and power and entertainment. And if you speak against the dominant voice, you're going to be marginalized. Recognize the danger. Because before you know it, you're going to be outnumbered. Life is a spiritual war, and every one of us will face small skirmishes and major battles. And when you're under siege, outnumbered, and all hope seems lost, the question we often ask is, what are we going to do? What shall we do? And you might say, I'm going to do my best to trust the Lord, but it's so hard. Well, our last point moves us to action. Don't just trust God. Ask God to open your eyes. Ask God to open your eyes. Now we've reached the most, what I think is the most interesting scene in the whole story. So let's remind ourselves what's happening, right? The king of Syria has discovered that the prophet Elisha hears his plans. He's, he's always been one step ahead of him, and that's, that's really been vexing to him. So he sends this whole army to kill him at the town of Dothan. Elisha and his servant are surrounded, and they're under siege. What's the reaction? Verse 15, it says this, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? Now imagine you wake up and your house is surrounded by people with guns. How would you react? (laughs) I mean, I probably panic too, right? (laughs) We're surrounded, he's crying out. Elisha, there's there's no hope. What will we do? Now, I want to pause here for a moment and just press into this reality. Because most of us listening today have not literally been surrounded by an army on a mountain. Although, maybe some of us have. I don't know. But probably not. But even if we haven't been surrounded by an army on a mountain, we know the feeling. There are times when it feels like the world is just crashing around us. It's, it's that feeling of anxiety you get when something unexpected happens. It's that feeling when the bill comes and the bank account is too low. It's the feeling we get when the medical test comes back positive. It's the feeling we get when we haven't studied enough for that crucial test and we ask, what shall we do? In fact, many of us even today are having a panic attack over our faith because we wonder if God will protect us. And some of us don't believe he can, at least functionally. We're living a what-shall-we-do reality. So Elisha hears the cries of his servant, and look at how he replies in verse 16. It says, he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. (laughs) You say, huh? At this point, the servant's probably looking around, and he's saying, Elisha, are you crazy? Right? Like, we're alone here. It's just the, just the two of us. How are we going to fight this army? And that's the feeling we get when the armies of life surround us, whether it's circumstances or enemies. Fear can come on quickly. So Elisha says calmly, there is more of us than there are of them. 
And then Elisha does what so many of us forget to do or refuse to do, and that is pray. Verse 17, it says, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So the king of Syria sent horses and chariots. God sent horses and chariots with fire, right? He's going to take him out. And his prayer here was, Lord, open his eyes. Lord, open their eyes. We, may we pray, Lord, open our eyes. You see, so many of us are living in a what-shall-we-do place. What the Lord wants to do is open our eyes. What, is, what does he see? The Lord gives him the ability to see see the power of this invisible army. He gives them the ability to see they're not alone. There are more soldiers there than meets the eye. And that gets us to warfare lesson number two, call on God's invisible battalion. Call on God's invisible battalion. So let me ask you a question. Do you believe in angels? Right, the Bible, Bible often talks about the armies of the Lord but we too often dismiss that as superstition. Just like we pretend the devil doesn't exist, our modern scientific world chooses to ignore the heavenly host of angels. But over and over again in Scripture, we see angels showing up. Like J Jacob met with Esau in Genesis 32, and we're told that the angels of God met him. King David attests to the reality of angels over and over in the Psalms. Psalm 91, in particular, speaks of guardian angels. Verse 11 says this, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Friends, if you are a child of God, you have angels watching over you. God's invisible battalion. You're not alone. And it may feel like you're our, like you may feel like our friend in the jungle surrounded and about to be killed, but the, but the seraphim and the cherubim are at the ready if only we could perceive them. When we're under siege, if only we could perceive the mighty army that is with us. Elijah continue, Elisha continues in verse 18. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed again to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. He prays a second time. This time he prays for blindness for his enemies. And, and this probably isn't referring to actual blindness, but, but mental confusion. In other words, they're in a daze. Literally, they're bedazzled. Elisha even has some fun with them. Look, in verse 19, it says, Elisha said to them, this is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. What a scene here, right? Elisha has this whole army dazed and confused. He's playing follow the leader with them, essentially. Not this way, go this way, follow me, right? I mean, it's, it's crazy what's going on. He's probably even getting a chuckle. It's as, it's as if Elijah is saying, oh, you, you know, you're looking for me, right? Here I am. Then the Lord opens the eyes of the Syrian army and behold, they were right where they were trying to get to 
in the Israeli capital of Samaria, surrounded by the army of Israel. Now, what's interesting about this scene, in verses 20 to 23, the king of Israel, Joram, Ahab's son, wanted to slaughter the army. In fact, he looks at Elijah and he says, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He asked twice in verse 21. And the fact that he asks twice means that he's bloodthirsty. But Elijah just says no. No, um, instead he orders that the Syrian army be fed and sent home. In other words, Elisha shows us that in our spiritual battles, we must never stop loving our enemies. Never stop loving our enemies. And, that, and I got to tell you, that's a good word for us. Because so many of us are focused on fighting the culture war that we're bloodthirsty for our enemies. We want to see them crushed. But who are we called to fight? Doesn't Paul tell us in Ephesians 6, 11, and 12 that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in this dark world? God calls us to love our enemies, often fellow image bearers, even if they hate us. And guess what? Right, the Syrians never raid the land of Israel again. I'd like to think the love Elisha showed them had something to do with that. Elisha's actions also show us warfare lesson number three, our final lesson, and that is we have to fight on our knees in prayer. Fight on our knees in prayer. And this lesson is really the most important, but the most neglected, or perhaps the most taken for granted. The reality is too often we want to fight this spiritual war under our own power. I know I do. I think with all my Bible knowledge or all my youthful health, with all my cleverness, I can outsmart the enemy. And then maybe I'll give God the credit. But the reality is this, God wants to rescue us. God has an army and he wants to unleash them as we cry out to him in prayer. And yet we don't. Why? The greatest weapon against our enemies is prayer to the living God of the Bible. Do you remember that story I opened with about the medical missionary? That he was about to be killed and then 26 armed guards miraculously show up. Where did they come from? You've probably been wondering. Well, later on, the missionary went back to his home church and gave a report of God's work in the field. In his report, he mentioned this story and someone in the audience jumped up and interrupted him during his presentation. He said, sir, sir, can you tell me the exact day that incident happened? And it took a moment for the missionary to remember, but he did. And when he said the date, the man who interrupted him told, told, told the story. And this is what that man said. He said, when it's night in Africa, it's day here. And on the night of your incident in Africa, it was morning here and I was preparing to play golf. And as I was putting my golf clubs in the car, I felt the Lord leading me to pray specifically for you. In fact, the urging was so strong that I called several of the men in the church together to meet with me here in the sanctuary and pray for you. Would all, he looked around and he said, would all the men who met me on that morning please stand up? And all the men who got together that day prayed to pray stood up, and the number was exactly 26. Spiritual warfare is real. 
God is calling us to fall on our knees and pray for someone. That is how we wage spiritual war, both in our lives and in the lives of others. How do you fight spiritual battles? First, you trust God in the small skirmishes because those battles prepare you for the bigger ones. Second, you trust God when you're under siege, when the major battles come. But never forget number three. Ask God to open your eyes and see that you're not alone. The angel armies of God are with you and the cloud of witnesses is interceding for you. Some of us today are on Dothan Hill surrounded by enemies. And I would ask you, what is your Dothan Hill? Where do you feel surrounded? Because you need eyes of faith to see God's power. And so as we close today, I would just ask us to pray, Lord, open our eyes. Lord, open our eyes. Lord, open our eyes that we could see the reality, the spiritual reality that is so often invisible to us. Give us eyes of faith, Lord. And on a personal note, I just want to continue to thank all of you who've prayed for myself and my family and supported our family during the season we've walked through. 2020 has been a challenging year, one of the most challenging years of my life, and I know for many of you as well. In fact, even this week as I was praying through this message, the Lord was speaking to me and just saying, Bob, I want to open your eyes. <clears throat> I want to open your eyes to see that you, help you see you're not alone. <laughs> May you see the spiritual reality and the spiritual army that is behind you and your family. Lord, open our eyes that we may pray the prayer of David in Psalm 27.3. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident because the angel armies of our great God are with us. Amen? Let me invite the worship team up for one final song and let me pray for you. Great Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and Lord, I don't know the story of everybody who's walked in here today or who's listening at, at home, Lord, but I suspect there's people that are in a battle, are feeling surrounded, or feeling like they're in the jungle, and they're about to be jumped. And Lord, I pray today that you would give us a supernatural feeling that we are not alone, that your armies are with us, Lord that your son, Jesus Christ, came and died on the cross and defeated sin, hell, death, and Satan, Lord God. Victory is ours through your son. Help us to know that in a great personal way today, Lord. Help us to know we're not alone, that your, your angel armies are behind us and our enemies quake in fear because of your power. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your grace. We give ourselves to you today in Jesus' name. Amen.